Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Mark chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have some in the back. So if you don't own a personal paper copy and you would like one, you can do that. Some of us have digital uh, digital copies on our phones, and that is really okay. Um, you know, none of us is walking around like a, with a scroll like they did in the first couple of centuries. So if you made that jump into the new age, you know, and you've got your, your tech, that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you to David and Liz for leading us. And uh, I came up here with the, f- the full intention of not having you sit down yet, but I'm going to make you stand up now. So <laughs> let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able as we read Mark chapter 2. Verses 1 to 12. This is God's holy word. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him now to help us to understand this passage that we've read this morning. Pray with me. Oh, how good it is, Lord Jesus, to hear the words of this story. How awesome it would have been to have seen this actually take place. How awesome it would be to see people that we know and love healed this way by you. Uh, But you have given us your word, and so we pray that the response that these uh, onlookers had so many years ago, we pray that we would have an even greater response today, knowing the full story, and knowing that this man's body though broken, was healed by you, and your body, though healed, your, your body, the whole, was broken for us. We pray that you would enable us uh, to see you afresh, to see ourselves afresh, and to experience your grace this morning in a powerful and wonderful way. Would you bless us? And Lord, would you bless me? I have uh, not a paralysis of legs, but there are times when I feel like I'm just paralyzed emotionally or spiritually mentally 
And I pray this morning that you would be pleased to give life to someone whose limbs often feel lifeless. Would you bless me as I hold forth words of life to these people this morning? Would you bless us with the power of your spirit? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Here we go. Do it that way. All right. So the, people often try to pigeonhole Jesus and they'll say things about Jesus like he was a very, he was a wise teacher, he was a religious leader, he was a, some people would even say that he's a legend. And that's, that's getting harder to say because biblical scholarship is showing that Jesus was a real person. You can't say that he was a legend. And the biblical accounts are showing themselves over and over and over again to be historically accurate. So it's, in 1800 you could say Jesus was a legend. Now, not so much. But still people try to pigeonhole and uh, say that Jesus was really just a religious leader or wise moral teacher. But what if, what if he was not simply a wise, ancient, moral, religious teacher? What if we, you peel back the layers of cultural sensibilities and public opinions about Jesus and came face to face with Jesus himself? You would encounter something that pierces you to the core of your humanity and doesn't allow you to escape. What if encountering Jesus is like encountering le- electricity so that when you take hold of it, it takes hold of you and you can't let go? What if he's like that? So what Jesus says about himself, as you read through the Gospels, is, uh, is more than anything that people in the modern world try to pigeonhole him into. It's, more, it's actually more sensational. Because Jesus claims, and he hints throughout his life, that there's something more going on with him than a moral teacher, that he is actually God himself in the flesh. This was Jesus' claim as he walked the earth. And in other world, major world religions, leaders would say, I, am the, I can show you the path to get you to God. And Jesus says, I am the path. I am God. When you come to me, you have come to God. And so he's, he says, he makes these what seemingly are outlandish claims, and he said, he's always hinting at it. So this is in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And it's just this kind of little offhand comment that Jesus seems to make, where it's kind of like, hey, my family used to vacation down at Vero Beach. And he says it just kind of like matter of course, matter of fact, in the midst of this. Uh, he says, before the creation of the material universe, I saw Satan go bad, rebel, and be hurled out of heaven like a big fireball. And if you're listening to Jesus, you're thinking, what did you just say? You saw what? And where were you when you saw that? How did you see that? Or Jesus says things like this, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Not a light in the world, but the light of the world. In other words, I'm like the sun to your earth. You revolve around me. All life revolves around me, and I give the light that you need for life. So Jesus says, I'm at the very center of all of this. And so the question we, you know, we might ask as we come into the passage like this is, what can, what can Jesus do? Is he someone who can do the things we want him to do? But the question, the deeper question is, who is this? So we have three points on an outline, because everybody loves outlines. So we're going to do the outline. I'm not going to give them to you just as we go along, and they'll be on the screen. So, oh, there's one right there. The great appeal of Jesus' teaching. That's a, one of the big things you see. Mark 2, verse 1 to 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, because Capernaum was his base of operations. And many were gathered there, 
So there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Okay. His teaching is not incidental. It's not secondary. It's his teaching is primary. Teacher preacher is not his cover story for everything else he's doing. It is what he came to do. He said, I came to teach. I came to preach. Because the world was sabotaged by a lie with our first parents. And that lie has gotten into every single one of our hearts. And it has shaped us. Every single individual human heart is sabotaged by a lie that we can't just root out the way that we might want to. And every human culture has its own variation on that that comes from the very first moments we're born into a culture. We start hearing it. And that cultural manifestation of the lie is imposed upon us. And so when Jesus is talking to this group in the the first century, he knows there's a lie that's buried in their hearts. And so his goal is to uproot and root out that lie that's buried in every single human heart. So Jesus spent his time teaching and persuading and convincing and holding forth truth. And when people heard that he had come home, everyone wants to come and hear him. So they're in the windows, they're in the doorways, they're pressing in, they're crowded in so that as many people can get in as possible to hear what Jesus said because he spoke as no one else had spoke. Spoke and it went deep into the core of who they're their hearts, and Jesus' words gave life and freedom and hope and perspective without being sappy or silly or in any way self-serving, but for the sake of the people. And so, sitting with, with the crowds of people listening to the scribes, and they claimed the corner market on the Old Testament understanding, uh, and because Jesus' teaching was making a stir with all the people, just like, I want to hear what he's saying because it's speaking to me in a way nobody else does, the scribes are coming to investigate. And the scribes uh, uh, were jealous because people were drawn to listen to Jesus in a way that they were not being drawn to listen to the scribes. And the scribes' teaching was kind of, it was packaged, man-made rules, leaving very little substance. It was watered down. It was unpalatable, right? I'll give you a picture of that. Uh, years ago, I visited my mom, and I was trying to eat healthy at this point. And so, and I didn't want to go to the store. I said, do you have anything to make a salad? And she said, yeah. And so I went and got lettuce and I got everything that was in the refrigerator. It was going to be a pretty sparse salad, not much on it. And so I wanted something else to go on my salad. So I went into her pantry and I found a little bag of Doritos chips. You know, the kind that you get for like make sandwiches and stuff. I was like, okay. So I crumbled them up and these are going to be my salad topping. So crunched them up in the bag, opened it, poured them out. I thought, well, this is looking like a good salad now. So, and then I put ranch dressing on it. That's a different story. So, got my salad, took the first bite, and I said, how old are those chips? And uh, she said, I don't know how old they were. And she came and she looked at it, and she said, she popped it in her mouth, and she said, Stephen, these chips are rancid. She actually used the word rancid. I was like, I didn't know she knew that word. They said, rancid. And I said, they were in your covers. That's where I got them from. Why is she? When the scribes taught, it was rancid, right? I couldn't eat any of the rest of my salad because the chips were now intermingled in everything. And this is what was going on with the scribes. Everything that they were saying was rancid. There's a place in Luke 11 where Jesus is Giving, it says casting of woes upon people. But Jesus is having a very serious conversation with the Pharisees and then with scribes like these here. And he says, you put 
heavy burdens on the backs of people and you will not lift one finger to help them. Now, what's fascinating about that is this is already going on here. And people are listening to what Jesus is saying and it feels like the burdens are coming off. And every time the scribes open their mouth, it feels like the burdens are coming on. And so they're coming to Jesus in hordes to hear what Jesus is saying. But the scribes are preventing, they're wanting to assess Jesus, to prevent other people from coming. They're wanting to say, okay, what is he saying that is drawing this crowd? And then Jesus says something that really sets them off. And, and uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But Jesus asks them the question. He says, why do you question in your hearts what I'm saying? And what he's saying is the problem's not my teaching. That's not what got you angry. The problem is there's something that's going on inside of you where the taste of what I'm saying, it tastes foul to you or it tastes wrong to you or it doesn't have any taste at all. I've got a, uh, Rebecca and I have a friend. He's a British guy named Chris. And uh, Chris got COVID. And after COVID, he lost his, his taste. Like during COVID, he lost his taste. And I've, I've talked to other people who say, yeah, I lost my taste for a while. He lost his for a long time. And this is really bad news for Chris because he's a foodie. And he loves to eat food. I mean, he can just pack it in and, you know, just has a high metabolism, everything. But he's a foodie. So he came to our house to eat. And uh, Rebecca served one of our favorite meals and he couldn't enjoy it at all. And that's when we found out he can't taste it. It's not good. He said, no, I've, I've lost my taste of, of, of my sense of taste. I can't taste any. I, can't, I, can, I know it's largely salty or know it's largely sweet, but I'll, I can't really differentiate any kind of subtleties in the taste. So Rebecca decided to make our uh, chicken penang, and she made it extra spicy. And she made it so spicy that, you know, the rest of us are like drinking water and trying, you know, drinking milk, trying to get it down. But Chris, when he ate it, he said, oh, I can taste it. I can taste it. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. I can taste it. So he's, she made it spicy, and she, he, she made it so spicy that he could taste it because she wanted him to be able to taste. And so when Jesus is teaching, his teaching is spicy because he knows there are people who just can't taste the good things he's saying, so he, he'll say things that are very strong at times, but what he's doing is speaking to the heart, persuading, convincing, trying to show people that the things that are buried in our hearts aren't true. So he's rooting those out. And so Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and then there's an interruption. And uh, there's a man who was paralyzed, and he has four friends, and I actually read a little bit about the way their, root, their ceilings were built. They're not like Florida ceilings. These are, these are made out of wood sticks and beams that are set across with earth packed down on top of it. And so when it says they were digging through the roof, they were literally digging through the roof. And they lowered this man into the middle of the group of people. And Jesus, as Jesus at this point, he'd been teaching, spicy teaching. But at this point, he said something that made their jaws drop and their eyes get big because he said something that seemed even blasphemous. And we see this in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they're right. That's right. That's a right assumption. Who can forgive sins 
but God alone. Sin is sin because of God. If there is no God, there is no such thing as sin. If there's not a lawgiver, there's no... If we are just products of matter plus time plus energy plus space over a period of time, like just a long period of time, and we just evolved, that means there's no such thing as morals or rules or anything else. We're kind of dealing with this in our culture right now is a sense that there's no, there are no absolutes. If there is no God, then we're just primates hitting each other with sticks, and there is no sin involved in that. But since there is a God who has given us rules and laws and told us this is the way that he made the world, we are held accountable for those things. And because he's the one who set the rules as the judge about, uh, uh, and uh, he's the only one who can forgive. Anybody who is forgiven of all of our sins, that's something only God can do. Psalm 51, verse 4 reads uh, this way. This is a psalm of David after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. Right? So he's basically the Jeffrey Epstein of his generation. He has power. He seduces her. He forces her to do something. She, wouldn't, she wasn't pursuing that, but he called her and made her come. And he's the most powerful man in the land. So it was evil. And then he had her husband killed. And he engaged his entire political and military system to have this man killed. And he sinned against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband. He sinned against the whole nation. He sinned. And this is what he says in his prayer of confession in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's kind of like, well, <laughs> what about Bathsheba? And what about Uriah? And what he's saying is the sin is the sin because of who God is. Apart from that, we're just primates hitting each other. But he's saying it was wrong, it was sin, because it was sin against God first and foremost. And so when Jesus comes in, and he's saying, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? That seems completely foreign to any of the, the teachers of the law who are watching this. They're like, only God can forgive sins. This man can't forgive this other person's sins. So here's the strangeness of the scene in their minds. Is imagine there's, there are three people. There's one man who strikes another. And then, but didn't hurt me in any way. And I say to the man who did the striking, your sins are forgiven. How's the victim going to respond? It's like, you can't forgive his sins. He, he, he wronged me. You can't forgive this person's sins. And so when they say God alone can forgive sins, this is the dynamic they're talking about. Is Jesus, who in their minds is just a sin, cannot forgive this man's sins against God or anybody else. God has to do it. So in Mark 2, 8 to 12, uh, what we read is, next is this. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus doesn't back away from the claim. Instead, he says, to prove to you that I have authority on earth, to say what you claim is blasphemy, I'll prove it by doing something 
absolutely seemingly impossible to you, I'm going to heal this paralyzed man. Now, I don't know if you've seen uh, faith healers, televangelists, other people on TV who are, who are doing that. Uh, there's this one scandal that took place a couple of years ago with one of these guys where there was a man who came in a wheelchair, and it's all on video, and this man was claiming to be able to heal everyone, and he said that he was healing this man in the wheelchair, and he, he pushed him backwards, and the man fell out of his wheelchair, and they had to help him up, and they videoed you know, the rest of the thing. This man does not get up. He does not walk around, right? You can't heal that that way, right? So... Yeah, I mean, you can fake blindness. You know, where are y'all? <laughs> we can fake deafness, but this is something they couldn't fake, especially if this man grew up in Capernaum and they remember the tractor accident that happened when he was 16 and know he's been paralyzed ever since. They couldn't just ignore this. He's right here in front of them, and Jesus healed him. Now, miracles. Your average Christian cannot perform miracles, not in the history of the church ever, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, and not now. In the Old Testament, the, the, the miracles were a sign, a sign from God that a person was speaking on behalf of God. And if this person was speaking on behalf of God, they need to have some sort of credentials to be able to prove that, because you could just say you're speaking for God when you're not. So when Moses went into Israel, or went into Egypt, he said, what, what credentials are you going to give me? And God gives him the ability to throw the staff on the ground and pick it up. It be, the staff becomes a snake. He picks it up by the tail and it becomes a staff again. All the plagues on Egypt, this was the credentials. In the New Testament, the apostles are given signs and wonders and miracles to, to show people that they have credentials to be able to speak on behalf of God. They, they receive the stamp of approval. So the apostles, like the Old Testament prophets, performed miracles to verify that they were speaking for God. And when Jesus is talking about this miracle here, he performs it in verse 2.10 as a show of credentials. Verse 2.10, what does it say? You may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man, get up and go home. So this man, obviously paralyzed, then with newly restored healthy limbs, does what everyone knew was impossible except for direct divine intervention in the normal working of the world with this kind of brokenness. So the healing was not an event in and of itself. Jesus performed the healing as proof of the claim to forgive sins. So Jesus proved that he has the right to say what only God can say by doing what only God can do. Only God can forgive and only God can heal paralysis just by words. He performed a deed that they knew could only be attributed to God so they would know to attribute his words and what he said about forgiveness also to him speaking with the authority of heaven behind him. Now here's part of why this is important. Um, we know people, I know people, maybe you do too, um, who have been hurt by the assumption that miracles are taking place with individual people the same way they were taking place back during New Testament times. That there are people who are able to perform miracles that same way today, right? I have a person in my life that I know, that I love, and she is racked with guilt because what she was told is if she had enough faith, she could heal her brother's cancer. And so she prayed and prayed and she laid hands and she was sure that God was going to do it for her. And then when it didn't happen, who does she blame? herself. 
I didn't have enough faith to bring this about. It's my fault that my brother got cancer and died. This is real. This is real. This is serious. And so the Bible actually lays out for us reasons why miracles take place. Now, we make a distinction between miracle with a capital M and a little m. I've had huge answers to prayers that I didn't expect. Um, or I prayed to God to do something, and he did something above and beyond what I was expecting. Uh, I was telling somebody this morning, uh, at age 36, I've been having back issues for years, and I just said, Lord, heal my back. And guess what? It happened instantaneously. God just healed my back. I've known other people that they say, I've got prayer, stories of praying, God just healed it, miracle with a little M. But a person who comes in and says, I'm speaking on behalf of God to you and performing miracles as signs, that's one that the Bible cautions us about. And if you want to have a further conversation about that, I love conversations over coffee. So come find me. So I may have said, said something and just like poked you. And you're like, hey, wait a second. So let's talk about the wait a second. We love that. Okay, so, um, so come and don't find me afterwards because I'm going to greet people. But let's you know, get, on, get something on the books. Okay, so the reason Jesus does this, he says, is to prove that he can do what only God can do. You say that only God can forgive sins? You're right. So watch me. So he has the authority to forgive and revealing his divine authority and identity. And he, he does something that reveals it. But he also drops a title here that he hasn't used yet, but is used throughout the book of Mark. And that's the title that appears in verse 10, the phrase, Son of Man. This is the first time Jesus uses it of himself in the gospel. And uh, in it's used really only Jesus of himself. Now, where is he getting that from? Well, in one place is in Psalm 144.3, which it just simply refers to a human being. If you read through Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is, always, is called all the time, son of man, son of man, son of man. It's referring to him as a prophet. In Psalm 8, it refers to the king of Israel, but there's a hint at something more. But in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this one is big. Uh, because it's revealing something about who the Son of Man truly is. So we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus picks up those themes again in, in Matthew chapter 28 with the great, great Commission, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so he's saying, I'm the sovereign center over all things that take place on the earth. And he shows himself at different points in the gospel to be sovereign over people and places and illness and demons and wind, waves, food, fish, water, paralysis, guilt, and sins. He just has authority, not just authority to forgive sins. If he has authority to forgive sins, then he has the authority to judge sins. And if he has the authority to judge sins, then he has the authority to make rules and laws. And if he's come to root out the lies that are in our hearts and to speak the truth to us, then he should be believed. But we don't believe him, even though he has the authority. And as we begin to look at this passage... Uh, we see that because we don't trust him and we don't obey him, 
We need forgiveness. And that brings us to the, the last, this, the great relief of Jesus' forgiveness. Chapter 2, verses 5, 10 to 12. Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So here's a scene, right? The man comes through. He's on the floor in front of Jesus. Everybody can tell that this man is paralyzed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I were sitting there watching that, I would think, well, read the room, Jesus. <laughs> this guy is paralyzed. He's not here for religion. He's not here for confession. He's here for you to heal him. So why didn't Jesus heal him right off the bat? It's because I think in Jesus in some ways is saying this, I am reading the room, but I'm also reading this person. And what he needs more than anything else right now is to hear the words of forgiveness. So let me give you two reasons why this might be true from the text. And I've seen both of these things in pre preparation for the week. Is uh, one, one reason that Jesus may have dealt with the man's uh, sin and guilt and forgiven him first is this man felt that his guilt uh, was brought on by himself, which some people do. Is what did I do to deserve this? We don't know how he was paralyzed. We don't know any of that. But there was a common thinking in that day and age that was a little bit like when people throw around the word karma in the United States right now. What goes around comes around. That if you do something wrong, that's going to bite you in the end. You're going you're to face consequences in this life. And so there was a little bit of that thinking. So in John chapter 9, verse 3, there's a man who's brought to Jesus who was born blind. And so the people there are looking at this man and they say, Jesus, who sinned? this man or his parents that he was born blind. And what he, they seem to be asked, assuming is, if this man's blind, it's because of some sin that God is punishing in this man. So is he punishing him for the parent's sin or something that he would do in the future? And Jesus says, I tell you, it's neither. But this would happen so that you may see the work of God. So it's not about the sin. It's, there's not karma involved with that. Or in uh, Luke chapter 13, there's a tower it's called the Tower of Siloam. You can read about this. There's this tower that falls on 18 people and kills them. And there's this assumption that people have that Jesus draws out. He says, do you think that these 18 people were worse than the other people that lived in Siloam at that point? As if God is waiting there. It's like, okay, I'm going to get these 18 people together. Push. And so he's killing all these people right here because they were worse than any other people in Siloam. And the answer Jesus says is, No. I tell you, they were not worse than other people. So what he's saying is the whole karma thing that we think about, that's not the way that God works. Oftentimes in this life, a person who is uh, righteous and good has tried to love their neighbor well. They go through some very, very difficult things. And people who have uh, done a lot of things they shouldn't seem to have lives that are, are golden and don't seem to have any trouble. But again, as you start dealing with the things that people assume, you see there's a lot of hurt. And so Jesus is clarifying those things. I knew a man, actually I knew a pastor and he's the one who told the story. And I, I think I knew who it was, but I didn't meet the man. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, 
There was a man, when, uh, one of my professors in seminary told a story about a man in his congregation who owned a big construction company. And his son had been killed in a car accident a couple of months before. And so this man who was in his church came to him and he sat across from him at his, at his desk and he said, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. And the pastor said, why do you think it was your fault? It was just, it was a car accident. You weren't anywhere around. He said, I did this in my business and now God is punishing me for it by taking the life of my child. God did this to me because I did something wrong. Do you see the error in that thinking? And so this man is completely racked with guilt over this, thinking somehow I did this, right? So you, the hard things that happen in your life are not due to karma. God doesn't deal in karma, right? There may be cause and effect things that happen because of decisions that we've made, but God doesn't deal in karma. So don't assume that the difficult thing that you're going through is somehow God smiting you or punishing you. Instead, it might be something that God is doing in your life to increase your faith because it's often when we go through these difficult things in our lives where we find ourselves trusting in God, our relationship with God growing even more. So don't assume that he's angry and frustrated with you. It may be an opportunity for growth. But that's one thing. It could be that. It could be that this man felt there was some connection and people or other people did. Or it could be this. Jesus was saying that, communicating to everybody present, you all think that he's here and what he needs most is to be healed of his paralysis. But it could be what Jesus is communicating to him and everybody else there is, no, he's got a deeper ailment, uh, more crippling malady, which is his sin and his guilt. Because we typically, I think this way, I think about the things that I've struggled with externally as my worst problems, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's something internally that's going on. That's your worst problem. So, college students, years ago, college guys were having, was having a Bible study, and uh, we got to the point at the end where I asked, I, you know, we were talking about sin and redemption, and so I asked, okay, how can we pray for one another? Oh, what do you want to pray for? And so it was interesting the way that they were saying something that were just vulnerable enough but not really vulnerable at all. <laughs> so they said the same things that we all will say in prayer requests. Oh, my grades, I'm lacking motivation, which is really true of every college student, but probably there's something else going on. Or my roommate, my roommate's hard to get along with. So pray for my relationship with my roommate. Oh, pray for that. Um, somebody else says, pray for my cousin. My cousin's got this stuff going on. Okay, we'll pray for your cousin. And as we went around, you know, there are all these kind of like semi-self-revealing, almost vulnerable prayer requests of things they're dealing with. And so I just kind of cut to the chase, and pardon me for what I'm saying here to you, but I, you've got you've to know this is going on. I said, yeah, I said these, this isn't your problem. I said, you're all addicted to pornography. And they all looked at me like I just fired a harpoon across the room at them, the way that you're, you're looking at me right now. And... Uh, and the, when I said that, they all looked at me and they all had the look on their face of like, how did he know? And the answer is, I live in the 21st century in the United States. We all have portable devices in our hands. You all think nobody knows, but we all know. I've seen the statistics. I've talked to you one-to-one. -one. You're all in the same boat. Now, it's not just young people. It's all, all of those bets are off now. It's, it's old people. It's young people. It's across the board. We're all dealing with all kinds of stuff.
And what I'm saying is, here's not a harpoon moment, right? Our deepest issues are our sin issues. It's our deepest issues. It's affecting everything in our lives. And what Jesus is doing with this man and with all of us is saying, in, by faith in me, your sins are forgiven. Don't wait until you get your life right to run to me. Come to me now. The, the paralytic, he doesn't talk really the entire time. It's Jesus' words. It's Jesus' forgiveness. The only thing he's done is showed up. So he hasn't changed his life. He hasn't cleaned up his life. He hasn't done any of those things. But he believes Jesus. And because of that, Jesus forgives his sins. And all, all that means to believe Jesus is I believe that he has the authority and the willingness to meet me in the brokenness of my life. And I believe him when he talks and says things. And I trust him, based on this, which these people didn't understand at this point, that in him is the full forgiveness of sins. It's fully forgiven. So, what does that mean to forgive? The Bible gives us all kinds of illustrations of this. One of those is in Micah, uh, Old Testament reference, uh, Micah 7, it talks about God throwing our sins into the sea. And if you've ever seen anything lost at sea, it's lost. Uh, I saw this years ago, Rebecca and I were with some friends at Panama City. And, uh, you know, your fingers get cold and you're doing things in the water and all of a sudden your wedding ring goes flying off. And so uh, Richard's wedding ring went flying off. And he's like, oh no, my wedding ring. And so we all turned into like, you know, mer people trying to find his, his ring at the bottom of the ocean. And we couldn't find it. It was just gone. Of course, his wife was upset, but, you know, couldn't help, help that. But it's gone. It's thrown into the sea. It's gone. And when Jesus talks about our sins being forgiven, he's saying, it's gone. It's never coming back. Never coming back. And this is what we read. Anybody who's, a, who's walked with Christ for a long time knows this. J.I. Packer. He says, the basic fact of biblical religion is that God pardons and accepts believing sinners. Charles Spurgeon, God loves to forgive even more than you love to sin. Michael Reeves, when you would run from God in guilt, he would run to you in grace. So if you're here for the first time this morning and you're hearing the words of God's grace, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Thrown into the ocean, completely forgotten, washed clean. Now some of you are here, and you're looking at yourself and saying, I've been in church a lot in my life. Can God accept me for the things I've done? Because I did things when I knew better. Can he accept you? Sally. Sally was a Christian um, She'd been in church her entire life, and when her son was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder, uh, she stopped praying for five years. And as soon as it happened, she was angry with God. She was angry with the church. She was angry that people weren't coming along with her the same way. She was angry at her husband. She was angry at everything. She separated from her husband. She stopped going to church a year and a while while her son was in hospice, and he eventually passed away. So while her son was in hospice, all of these things are going on. She abandons God. She doesn't want anything to do with God, his people, marriage, anything. So she left. After a year and a half of being gone from her church and her church appealing to her, they did something that churches sometimes do. They removed her from the roles because we said, they said, you've made vows of membership that you're not fulfilling. We, we're not, we don't think 
from your lifestyle that you really understand the gospel. We don't think you're a Christian. So they removed her. And she didn't care. But as she lived her life, and she was in a university environment, as she lived her life and, and was interacting with the world around her, he, she began to realize that the world around her did not have answers to the questions. The questions about suffering, about hardship, about morals, about life, about meaning, about purpose, about why humans should have dignity. They couldn't answer any of the questions. The thing she heard all the time, she felt was this little trite saying of, well, you just, all you need is love. That's what you need. You need to just love people. That's, that's what we should all do. And she felt like this was just not sufficient for her. And so she began to long for deeper answers once again. And then at the same time, she was hearing things that were taking place in the culture around her. And she would say, I would never do anything like that. And then she found herself doing those very things. And the thought crossed her mind. And she said, I miss the peace of God's forgiveness. Because her guilt was just welling up inside of her. And so finally, at the end of the five years, she said she cried out from the depths of her soul, God, forgive me. I miss you. And she said, he did forgive me. She knew better. And she rebelled against God and ran her own way. But then by the end, he drew her back. She was reconciled to her husband. They have two kids. She's a faculty advisor at a university for a Christian group there. Just change for her. Can God forgive you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know, he's not simply saying that he's healing this man as a sign that he can forgive this man. He's saying, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins for anybody, to forgive sins, period. That's when he had this man healed. So that's a sign, isn't it? That he has the authority to heal our sins. But how do you know? How do you know he's... Wouldn't it be nice if you're like, you know, I, I was missing a thumb and then Jesus all of a sudden grew my thumb back. Wouldn't that be great for me to have a sign like that? That I've been, my sins have been forgiven? He has given us a sign. The Bible tells us always to look to it. It's a cross. It's an empty tomb. And the Bible says that's the sign God has given to us is that Jesus has borne our guilt. He's paid for our guilt. Our guilt is removed from us, and he has been successful in redeeming us because of that empty tomb. He bore our sins to the cross. He paid it fully, and now he is seated at the Father's right hand. So Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is the sign that God has given to you that your sins are forgiven. And he says, anyone who believes... Your sins are forgiven. Let me pray for us. I don't know, Father, as we read this and talk about it, uh, some of us have heard this so many times, it's just not new. It's not fantastic. It's not wonderful. Uh, and even after just talking about this in my own soul and wrestling with it and just saying these things out loud, I find that I'm in need of something else. Not just to hear it with ears of flesh and not just to say it with a mouth, but to believe it deeply in my heart and in my soul. To have a sense like this man did that day of elation as he walked out of your presence, completely restored, not just 
in his body, but completely restored to you by faith. Would you give me that even today? And for those who are here, would you give us that? That it wouldn't just be words that we've heard over and over, but it would be something fresh and new and wonderful. And for those who are here for the first time today, Lord, we pray that it would not just be religion. We pray that you would do something wonderful. That they would have a sense of healing in their souls and their hearts. Would you do this? You are good and you're wonderful and you love us. And you're willing. We see it in this passage. Would you show us all over again the beauty and the wonder of forgiveness in you? We pray it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.